0: Podcast. My name is Mike Joseph. I hope that you are staying safe and healthy. I've been feeling even more energized about the show than usual as of late. We've got a fantastic slate of interviews coming your way over the next few weeks. I would appreciate if you gave feedback on this episode or the podcast in general or any previous episodes by leaving a rating or a comment on whatever platform you're using to listen. Also, feel free to follow me on IG at it's Mike Joseph. And guess what? We now have a monthly newsletter. You can sign up at tinyurlcom detoxpod. My guest for this episode is Kevin Patterson. Kevin is an educator based in Philadelphia. He runs the blog Poly Role Models and has authored the book Loves Not Colorblind, Race and Representation in Polyamorous and Other Alternative Communities. He's also co-authored two volumes so far in the superhero series For Hire. In this interview, Kevin and I talk about polyamory, sure. We also talk about the discipline of writing, his experience as a student at an HBCU, the issues that come up with being open about taboo topics when you come from a more conservative background, how to celebrate wins during a difficult time for humanity, and so much more. I'm very proud to welcome Kevin Patterson. Let's hear what he has to say. Hi, my name is Kevin Patterson.
1: I think the thing I'm known for is the, the blog Poly Role Models, but that's sort of expanded into trying to do a lot of work surrounding polyamorous representation in general. I wrote the book Love's Not Colorblind, Race and Representation, and Polyamorous and Other Alternative Communities. I wrote the, the the Queer Polyamorous Superhero Series for Hire with my co-author, Alana Phelan, and I talk polyamory things and try to make uh, representation better.
0: So how did you... I don't know that I have ever heard your origin story before, and I've oh. heard you speak on a couple of occasions. Yeah. So how did you get involved in doing this work? Well, before you g- got involved in... T- into doing this work, you yeah. had to have recognized at some point that you were a polyamorous person. So I guess yeah. it's, a, it's a two-part question. What All is right. your origin story in regards to polyamory and what is polyamory to you? So, in, in fact, I can give you both parts. So my origin
1: story is, uh, like to, to, like I always tell it the long way. I'm gonna tell you the short way. Me and some friends, including a brand new girlfriend, we went on a, a road trip together. At some point, me, this new girlfriend, and then one of her friends who came on this trip with us, we sort of stumbled into a threesome. And when we started talking about it afterwards, like I expected it to get awkward. I I thought it was going to break up the relationship, honestly. But instead, it just strengthened the relationship. It just opened up the kind of conversations we were having instead of just sort of going on a, a default setting. That was 18 years ago the way i practice my polyamory and what it means to me and and, and a lot of times it means different things to different people and like people sort of customize it to their own taste but for me it means that the people that i meet the people that i interact with we sort of form our relationships as it comes like we don't like go into it with a pre a predetermined structure we don't have a a game plan it's we feel each other out, figure out where we stand, like logistically, socially, sexually, romantically, and so on. And then wherever, wherever we fit, that's what our relationship is.
0: What's it like? Because I, I feel like there are a lot of people who appreciate polyamory in in theory, but are afraid to either be public about it or talk about it to their partners who, are, who they are presumed without even there being a discussion to be in a monogamous relationship with. How has that been like discussing that with other people, particularly if you're not in a spot where it's acknowledged that the other people are polyamorous? And how's it been like being public about that?
1: I know like with me, I I, I, I always say I'm like aggressively public. I, I try not to hide it because, I wanted to I want to sort of normalize I want to normalize the appearance I want to normalize the the existence of polyamory I want to get better representation you know like a, a lot of the media appearances and stuff that we have are, are are really terrible like I've even I've had a couple where I got quoted in something that was was bad you know I you've uh,
0: told that story I remember hearing that before I think you even mentioned it in uh, the book.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, I got, I felt like I got tokenized and yeah, it was, it wasn't a great experience. So like I try to normalize that stuff. It's hard to, it's hard to, I feel like polyamory sort of easy to explain in that, like, if you have a group of friends that you love in different ways, then you already understand polyamory. Like you, you, you got that friend that when it's time to watch the football game, that's the friend you want to hang with. And you got the other friend that when it's time to go party and drink, there's a different friend that, you know, there might be a, a, a different friend that you hang with. They don't always have to be the same people. They don't always have to be the same social circle. And so like, if you have a group of friends, if you have family members that you love equally and. But for different reasons, then you like you already have you already understand polyamory. So to the barrier for having those conversations, though, is that we're in such a mononormative society that it makes um, that it puts this this one true way on a on a pedestal. It puts this the idea of finding the one like you can't complete your life or you know unless you find the one. We put such a priority on that that people don't want to have those conversations. Or, or else they feel, they feel threatened. We're just using myself as the example where I stumbled into a threesome. I stumbled into non-monogamy and because I had to have the conversations at that point, we stayed there. We realized that it worked better for us. If I had not stumbled into non-monogamy, I doubt that I ever would have just said, hey, can we talk about this? I don't think I would have found, I don't think I would have ever sought out resources because if I, let's say I I find a copy of, you know, the ethical slut, what happens if my, 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 my then girlfriend, now wife, 18 years later, what happens if she finds it? And now we have to have these hard conversations, right? you know, all of a sudden it's like, it's, it's a, it's such a minefield of a conversation to have that a lot of people just don't and because society backs um, monogamy so heavily some people don't feel like they ever need to have that conversation they they found their one and that's that's all they all that they want and that's some that's and i'm speaking very couple centrically everybody has their own different path though
0: why so the i guess conundrum there is that there are so many people who are led to believe or conditioned to believe that it's like one for you and you only till death do you part when, and then they get married and they realize three or five or 10 years later that either they have been suppressing something or they've changed or their partner has changed and there's some kind of incompatibility there. What, what can we do, I guess, to sort of change the narrative around monogamous sexually and emotionally relationships. Being yeah. the norm, because I don't really think I mean, and obviously, maybe I'm projecting here. I don't feel like that really is what a lot of people want to be the norm. And I mean, you could look at the numbers of people who of divorces and people yeah. who are adulterers. And I, I feel like that backs me up a little bit. Yeah. And like, that's sort of the, that's sort of the funny
1: thing because like monog- monogamy as, and like, I'm not, sh- I'm not shitting on monogamy here. Just so it was real clear. Like, but the monogamy as a viewpoint, monogamy as a life choice is very normalized. Monogamy as a behavior, not really, not, <laughs> not really like anybody. Like the divorce rate is super high and there's and the, like the infidelity rate among people who aren't getting divorced is probably also pretty high. You know, I think something we can do in just having these conversations is just acknowledge the very simple fact that monogamy is hard and breakups aren't necessarily a bad thing. Like I I I, I, I talk about myself a lot because that's like the basis of a lot of my work is just sure. me talking about, you know, talking about myself and sort of finding finding common ground with the people that I'm that I'm speaking to. My wife and I have from day one to to year eighteen, we are such different people. you know, I don't know in a monogamous relationship where we, were we to be relying on each other for all of our like sexual or romantic and emotional and logistical needs. I don't know that we look as, as happy as we look today, you know. Sure like there there are there are aspects of each of our lives that the other is just not checked in for you know like when my wife became like involved in kink i was like cool i'm glad you have other people to do that with that's not something that i'm particularly interested in and when i finally became interested in kink it wasn't in a dynamic that was compatible with my wife you know i am like right now i'm like i'm looking at you on this screen and over top of this screen i've got two TVs one with you know one with a show on Netflix and one with some with some video games playing. and each of those things are things my wife is not interested in, you know So if, if it was time to like hang out, if she wanted to spend some quality time with me, it wouldn't be as quality for her as it would be for me sure. you know And when we go into these monogamous relationships, we put so many eggs in in, in one basket and then we demonize the fact that they don't all fit. You know, like we can just make it a normal conversation to say monogamy is hard and maybe you shouldn't be, even if you're not, even if the goal of the conversation isn't polyamory, you can have a monogamy is hard conversation and say like, you shouldn't shame one another for not fitting, you know, like not fitting every step of the way over the course of several years, you know, like people,
0: people grow or sometimes people don't. And sometimes that's the conflict in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't all grow at. If we do grow, we don't all grow at the same rate. No, and it's it's kind of unfair to ask people to do that because
1: that's not how humanity works in general. You know, there are times where I stagnate in terms of my learning process, and there are times where I I really thrive and grow and see the world in all new different ways. It's not going to be the same for every person that I'm with. It's not going to be the same for all of humanity. You know, these growth rates they change. Mm-hmm. So, the idea that people are supposed to stay together and grow together and be step in step every single step of the way. Like that's not, that's not a realistic thing. You can still craft a relationship while acknowledging that that's not a realistic thing, but like the, we got to take away the demonization of that.
0: I agree. I agree. So backtracking a bit, you. Oops, 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 oops. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're in Philly, right? <laughs>
1: Yeah, just outside of Philadelphia, Delaware County. And did you grow up in Philly? No, I'm a Jersey boy. Um, I was born in Brooklyn, but I was raised in North North Jersey, about 20 minutes outside of NYC.
0: Okay, so what brought you to Philly? A girl. Oh,
1: all right. <laughs> um, I left New Jersey to go to uh, Howard University, and in like my last year, year and a half, I met a I met a Philly chick, and and she's the one who I've gone, you know, been on this whole journey with. But When she decided to get her doctorate, when she decided to come back to the Philadelphia area to get her doctorate, I went with her and, and never looked back.
0: Right on. And I'm assuming it was a conscious choice for you to go to a HBCU.
1: It was. It, it was. I'll say it like this: It was a conscious choice for me to go to that HBCU. Okay. Um, my folks put me on. A, my folks. Put, there was some Alpha Phi Alpha. Cha- there was like a chapter in like Long Island who was doing this bus tour where they'd bring like three bus loads full of black kids to like every HBCU from New York all the way down to like Alabama and back. And I chose from among those schools. The weird thing about it though, is that I chose Howard because I wanted to go to Howard. And then I get to the part of the application that says, do you have any family members that ever, you know, that have ever gone to Howard? And I asked my mom thinking the answer is going to be no. Uh-huh. And she. She starts rattling off the names of, like, all of my aunts, all of my uncles, all of my cousins. <sighs> Apparently, like, Howard had been a family tradition for, for decades, and I was completely unaware of it, but I picked the school on my own. And
0: you had, you had no idea whatsoever?
1: Yeah, until I got to that part in the application. Like, I had three cousins who were currently going there when I <laughs> when I started. That's crazy. Three different cousins who were going there when I left.
0: Wow! Yeah. So, I guess what was that experience like? I actually don't know too many people who went to HBCUs. So, just I'm curious what that experience was like, just in terms of forming who Kevin Patterson is. So, I grew
1: up in the suburbs of Northern Jersey, and there were so there were there were black people, of course, but like there were there weren't enough of us for me to get like a real good sense of like all that blackness could be. And then I get to Howard, and I see so many different versions of of Black America, and it allowed me to sort of like, I didn't really change who I was. It allowed me to be comfortable in who I was, where like I didn't need to be like, I didn't need to be hood, or I didn't need to be you know Black excellence in a suit every day. I didn't need to be you know I didn't need to be T'Challa or Luke Cage. I could just be. I could like I was if I'm going to keep using these analogies, I can just be (laughs) miles Morales, right. You know, where I could just be the geeky black kid who gets along with everybody. And that worked for me, you know, where I I got to, I got to Howard a little bit insecure about who I was. And basically I just became a better version of who I was (laughs) and a a better, more confident. I became a better, more confident version of the same guy.
0: So, In the last like 10 years or so, I've really noticed like blurred culture taking off. Whereas like when I was a kid in the eighties, like if you were a nerd, you would kind of shit on a little bit or a lot, depending on, you know, what kind of nerd you were. Oh yeah. What, like as a kid, what was it like for you being kind of like a nerdy kid, assuming you were a nerdy kid. And how has that changed now that I feel like being a black nerd is actually celebrated you know it's not like the Dwayne Wayne days it's
1: you know I'll say I'll say like I was sort of a hybrid because like I was a jock as well like I was a jock without being a cool kid and I was a geek without being like a a, a social outcast okay but yeah like I it wasn't something to be celebrated then and it's really, it's it's more difficult for me now where before I was like, okay, well, these are the things that I'm into. I know I have to dad people who are going to like, you know, mess with me for playing video games and you know, um, reading comic books. Whereas now all those things that I love are super mainstream. And then, and then like the modern day geeks are such assholes about it. <laughs> where Grand Theft Auto 5 is the, is like the, the most financial, it's like, Uh, the strongest financially media property of all time. You know, Avengers Endgame made super money. Like if you look at like top 10 of like, of movies all time, like foreign or domestic, all those comic book movies and Star Wars movies and things that I, you know, that people used to mess with me about in junior high, those are all things that are like, that's the culture now. So when I see, when I see nerds uh, gatekeeping, it, it makes me really upset because I would have killed for girls to be into me because I was into Avengers back in the day. I would have killed to be able to go on a date to, to bring somebody to go see, you know, a Star Wars movie. I can do that with my wife and that's why I married her, you know. Meanwhile, like when I see people sort of gatekeeping that or saying like, you know, black women don't date me because I'm a geek. I'm like, that's bullshit. That you is know? bullshit. Yeah, I'm like, that's that's a struggle from the 80s, and you're in 2020 fucking up. like <laughs> Personal responsibility,
0: sir. Right. I agree. I agree. How does your blackness translate? And I'm asking you a leading question because I already at least kind of know the answer. Your yeah. blackness translate into polyamory because there's not a lot of positive representation of open relationships or non-monogamy in... I mean, in the media in general, I mean, things have really only started to turn for everybody in the last like five or six years, but specifically you don't see a lot of minority groups of any, you know, any, no one darker than cardboard is ever mentioned when it comes to non-monogamy or open relationships. And like, and, and, and we're changing that,
1: but it's, it's a, it's a slow process. Like 195 Lewis has some really good representation of polyamorous black folks, the show Compersion on, on, by Jackie Stone, that's on YouTube that, that has black folks uh, being polyamorous and like, they're, they're just starting out. So they're making all the rookie mistakes and everything like that. But it's, but I enjoyed the show. It's difficult because, like, because the world is difficult. Like the same, the same problems that I run into in terms of, like, you know, othering and white supremacy and to- and to- uh, being tokenized. That stuff shows up in polyamory as well, and that's that's what I wrote the book "Love's Not Colorblind" all about. Where it's really easy to to see the representation. It's really easy to see that so much of the representation in terms of polyamory is like white and cisgendered and able-bodied and traditionally attractive and thin and well-to-do and educated and straight with, like, and, yeah, uh, i was gonna say and, and straight dude and but bisexual women yep you know? yep and there's so much there's so much of that that it's easy to just write it off as a white thing and there was an episode of um insecure i think like season two sorry mm-hmm. if you haven't watched it you probably should have spoiler um, alert yeah, like season two of Insecure has like a non-monogamy storyline, and Issa Rae's first line about it is, isn't that some white people shit? Which, when I heard that, I was kind of upset, because I was writing Love's Not Colorblind, and that's the name of, of one of the chapters, yeah. white people shit. So, it's, when you're not represented in something, uh, it's really easy to just assume that thing is not for you. So, we're, we're turning it around, like, like my work and the work of a, like a lot of others, uh, Dirty Lola and uh, Christopher Smith, Alicia Bunyan, Samson, Afrosexology. Like, there's uh, there's a lot of us who are out there putting out really great work right now, and as a result, we're sort of we're changing the landscape. Like, I get I get commentary from people who read Love's Not Colorblind all the time, just saying like, Hey, you know, thank you. You helped me on my journey. Thank you. My community looks a little bit, you know, the contrast got changed a bit on the. On the the contrast dial got changed on my community a little bit <laughs> because of like a few people a few organizers read your book and like that's that's the goal. When I came into the polyamory community in Philadelphia, I felt like I was like the only black guy who was showing up on a regular basis. It was like me, my wife, and like one other black dude named Kevin, and we would show up to events on like a regular basis, and there were so few of us that's not really the case anymore where when the local community has events, there's, there's a few of us. And when like I host events, there's a lot of us, not just black folks, people of color, just you know, so we're changing that. We're, we're working on it in Philadelphia. and, And I imagine a lot of people are working on it in a lot of other places.
0: Do you think that there's a resistance to black folks, but again, people of color in general, communicating honestly about relationships because you know i feel like faithfulness in monogamy has like deep roots in religion yes and the same way that any type of non-heterosexuality is frowned upon and i'm gonna go ahead and stop you yeah and say that you were at you asked you were
1: trying to ask me a question and then you went directly into the the wording of my answer. Oh, well go ahead. Don't. I... <laughs> no, I mean like you, no, you, you said it like it's, there's along with the slave masters where we got the slave masters Bible and a lot of our culture is so deeply rooted in that same matter, that same Christianity that anything non-normative is seen as seen as negative. You know, like, like you said, like, like non-monogamy, like, like queerness, like, like trans identities are, are frowned upon. and, We have, and meanwhile, like, it's like I said, the, the, the behavior and the, the culture are, are so different, you know, like the culture is monogamous, but we have so many different terms (laughs) for, for non-monogamy. We got so many different versions of OPP, you know, like got from the Naughty by Nature song. We got, um. Creeping? Yeah. Creeping and Backdoor Jody and Side Piece. Side Piece? Yeah. And like uh, the weekend, uh, not the weekend. SZA has a song called "Weekend," where where she's talking about like you know he's my man for these days, and he's your man on the weekends. And we've got so many different versions of that. But in those same cultures, if you bring up if you bring up ethical consensual non monogamy, people don't know what you're talking about, or people will actively reject that shit. You know, people people who are cheating on their partners will <laughs> reject honest non monogamy. <laughs> Which makes no sense. Yeah. But like, would you it, it, rather be honest or dishonest? I've had people straight up say that to me where, um, like, I got into an argument with a friend of mine where her boyfriend was a cheating husband. And I said, you know, that, that wouldn't work for me. Meanwhile, like, if you were dating me instead of that guy, my wife would welcome you into our home and fix you a plate if she was cooking dinner. And she was like, no, that's weird. Like this, this person who only got to speak to her partner at night during his lunch breaks, and only got to see him every couple of weeks, and like couldn't like call him up if if, if she got a flat tire, and like couldn't you know couldn't post pictures of themselves on Instagram together,
0: she found my situation to be weird. And she goes, I, I don't, I don't understand that. I mean, there, granted, there was certainly a period of time when I would have considered cheating consensually or non-consensually kind of weird, but I, I, I don't understand the normalizing of, you know, being unfaithful while also not normalizing being consensually and enthusiastically into multiple relationships at once. As I'm thinking about it,
1: it's kind of like the difference between hiding parts of yourself and revealing parts of yourself. And we know how difficult that is, revealing parts of ourselves. You're always worried that you're going to be shamed or rejected, rejected you know? Rejected, yeah. And, and that in and of itself is a shame, that, like, we prioritize hiding aspects of ourselves for fear of rejection when, when it would be better if we just, like, learn to embrace one another for our differences.
0: Right. So how open are you to, like, I guess, like, family and, and you know, like, relatives and stuff like that?
1: I'm, I'm completely open with them, that's actually caused some strain in my, in my familiar relationships. It's there. I mean, it's the same, same thing. Same, same culture, you know, conservative West Indian cultures and like conservative Christian-y sort of uh, West Indian cultures.
0: I didn't where- know that you were also West Indian. All right. Yeah.
1: I, my mom is from Jamaica. My dad is from Guyana. And like that being the case, me being outside of the norm is is threatening and upsetting to them, you know, where I'm having, I'm like, I'm having like an all time high in terms of like communication and success and stability in my relationships. And my, the work that I do with like a poly role model, like under the, under the banner poly role models, writing books, teaching classes, doing like relationship coaching, all that stuff is at an all time high. And my, and like my mom was like, have you ever thought about being like a businessman or something, Kevin? Have you ever thought about a career change? And it's like, no, I've I've got a career. It's doing really, really well. It would be awesome if you could support me, but I understand why you don't.
0: Yeah, I totally get that. There's When people are old school, it's really, really difficult to change their way of thinking about a lot of things. Yeah, And, you know, in certain situations, I guess you have to determine whether it's worth it to maintain the relationship or not. Yeah.
1: That's, that's has been a lot of my thinking lately. I'm, I'm actually a big cream puff. And so as a result, I, am I probably should have cut off more of my family longer ago. And I won't because I'm always hoping I'm, I always leave the door open, hoping that someone is just going to accept me for being, being, being who I am and loving how I love.
0: Right. Right. I respect that completely. So, from being a polyamorous person into actually being an educator, like where did that shift happen? How did that shift happen? It was just me talking. Um it was just me talking and talking and talking.
1: Like I I, I would talk about my experience being being black and and polyamorous in a in a city that that wasn't really supporting of it. And a friend and then partner, Rebecca Hiles, the Frisky Fairy, was just like, hey, Kev, you should be talking about this in educational settings. And she she brought up the names of a couple of well-known conferences. And I was like, wow, like, that sounds that sounds a bit daunting. <laughs> but she encouraged me and I got accepted. So next thing you know, like I'm going to conferences that I had only ever heard about on podcasts and, and speaking and people are listening and is really resonating with folks. So I just sort of kept doing it. Like my story is mine, but a lot of elements, a lot of aspects of it resonate with people. And with poly Role Models and in the book, Love's Not Colorblind, I reach out to people for their stories as well. And and their stories resonate with folks as well. Where like in Polly Role Models, as an interview series, somebody would write in and say like, you know, I'm sober and polyamorous, and this is how my sobriety affects my polyamory. And there's somebody who needed to read that, or somebody be like, "Well, you know, I'm, you know, I'm neuroatypical and polyamorous, and this is how that, how that, how those impact one another." And there's there's someone who needed to read that. So, yeah. like the focus of my work, just in general, is putting out people's true stories, their real experiences with the polyamory, and just letting it letting it land the way that it lands.
0: Have you always been comfortable? speaking in front of people
1: no no no.
0: (laughs) particularly about topics that even people who are comfortable speaking in front of other people may not necessarily be comfortable talking about
1: yeah i mean it was uh really it was it was going going to howard and sort of like finding my comfort there because when i got there i wasn't i was afraid to speak to anybody about anything you know and now i just like the fear is still there i just push through it because i feel like the value on the other side of that fear is worthwhile. And I guess I sort of had to understand where the value was beyond beyond the fear of rejection or the fear of shame, you know?
0: A friend of mine, actually, former friend of mine, unfortunately, uh, Scott Polson Bryant wrote a book called Hung, which yeah. is about kind of the. I read that book. Yeah.
1: Someone, th- a, a partner of mine bought me that book, which is a statement in and
0: of itself. Yeah. It's about the sort of the fetishization. Of black yeah. men yeah and sort of the assumption that you know there's this stud pattern happening and you know just uh, i mean i guess all encompassing it's about sort of the sexual myth making that primarily white people do in regards to black black men specifically yeah. and I, I mean the assumption on my end is that every black man has gone through a portion of that that you know, has had a fair amount of romantic partners. Is that something that uh, you've experienced? There have been, like,
1: overtly, no. But there have been a couple of times where where I've been with people and, like, I got the impression that they didn't want to bring me around. They wanted to bring me home, but they didn't want to bring me around. Right. Uh, and those were very, very short-lived. I've Like, I've had people express, like, interest that felt off. And like I could, like I could read it that way. Like I couldn't one hundred percent say, like, "Hey, I was fetishized this way." But there are times where I'm like, you know, what? Like in terms of fetishization, like I know that it happens. I know that it's happened to me. It's not always as overt. It's not always overt in a way that it's like going to show up, like that that you're immediately going to pick up on it. I I vet my white partners so much harder than I I vet my by the people of color that I date. Especially like the black people that I date, I've met my white partners so much harder for for that kind of thing, and I feel like there's a sort of contract between us in that like most of my partners are queer, and most of my partners are non men, and as a result, like we make this agreement. I, I I I don't see you as I won't see you as like cis male entertainment, you know. Sure. Uh, even even if even if we're hooking up with women together i will see you as cis, cis male entertainment i will keep you i will try to keep you safe and stable in a in in a way that a lot of cis men do not and you got to do the same for me in terms of your whiteness tone that whiteness shit all the way down so that i don't feel like you're trying to fuck a runaway slave when when
0: i thought we were having like a human to human interaction you know what i'm saying that is a very good way to say to, to have a conversation like that. I mean, just speaking of myself, like I've definitely had situations where it's been all about. It's not been about me, Mike, as a partner. It's been about my blackness exactly. as a partner, right? Yeah. Right. And you know, particularly as a queer guy, sometimes you don't vet partners. There's just kind of a situation. You look at somebody, they look at you, and shit happens. Yeah. Um, and then in the middle of it they're like, oh, uh, give me that black tea. And it's just kind of like, hey, you know? That's what I mean. Like I've never gotten that. Oh, I've gotten
1: that. Yeah. Like <laughs> there, there've just been a couple of times where I had a feeling that if I said like, hey, you know, what are your parents like, the, the room would get colder, you know? Um, so yeah, like it's it's never been that overt, but like like the radar has to be on at all times.
0: Right. Right. So, from being able to speak in public and going to these conventions and stuff, what was the next step towards writing a book? Um, it was almost a, almost the same deal, where um,
1: where I saw that there, like um there was there was a, a a part of the the poly role models interview series called. Cautionary poly, teachable moments in non-monogamous relationships, where people would express their like some of their horror stories and what they learned from them. And I, I, I reached out to Thorn Tree Press and said, like, hey, I've got this idea for this book. And they were like, that sounds cool, I guess. But we've been hearing about this race and polyamory workshop that you've been doing. Would you be interested in like turning that into something? And so I was like, all right, yeah, cool. And then I went with it and it just, it caught, it caught on really. It sold better than they were expecting it to sell. It's still part of the conversation about two and a half years later. Like it's still so frequently part of the conversation. Like I'm really proud to have put it out. It wasn't, if it had just been like me left to my own devices, I don't know that I ever would have written a book. And next thing you know, like, I've written three, two years, uh, two, two years, two and a half years after the release, uh, before the release of my first, I wouldn't know what to tell you about a book. And now I got three out and I'm working on the fourth.
0: Damn. Yeah. Where do you get the focus to, to actually start a book and finish it? Cause I feel like for me, ADHD is a real, real, real thing. Truth. And books are hard to write. You are not wrong. <laughs> um, like, with, with Love's Not
1: Colorblind, it was just a process of me, like, I, I can talk about all of these topics at length. And that's, like, that's what got me in the room in terms of, like, educational spaces. So it was just talking to myself about these topics and typing what I was saying. And then, you know, going back and making it sound reasonable and making sure that I was adding other people's perspectives, academic research, a lot of analogies, because I, I tend to speak in a lot of analogies. Meanwhile, with the, uh, the superhero series, the For Hire series... I just love like I'm a geek, you know. So I, I'm a geek, and I love I love superhero shit. So I I would just I'd write and write and write like random superhero shit. And my partner Alana Phelan, uh my writing partner, not like a romantic romantic partner, partner sure. Uh, yeah, she she's gonna hear this and go ew. <laughs> <laughs> but like my my writing partner alana she she gives me focus. She's she's able to make it in like. If I'm banging if I'm banging action figures together like I might have a lot of fun but it's not really a great story. Right. She's able to take that and turn it into like a narrative structure. She can actually make it into something that people would want to read. Like I can come up with concepts and superhero names and powers and all sorts of shit all day long, but like she makes it into something that like that someone can actually read and get value out of.
0: Yeah, collaboration kind of feels like the way to go. In that stuff, I always feel like you need somebody. For me, anyway, like need somebody to kind of keep you on track.
1: Yeah, you know. Yeah, de- definitely. And like we, 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 I think we're able to like reasonably and now hold each other accountable for, for putting out some some good content. Like right now, we've got we've got the two books out for Higher Operator and for Higher Audition, and we're working on for Higher Supercell, and hopefully we'll get that out by the end of the summer. These are prose novels. People keep confusing them for graphic novels and not comic books. So, like, I'd like to like spell it out because I've I've had people like I've had people announce me as like the writer of these comic books, and I'm like, they, they're not they're comic- comic books, bro. Yeah, I've got like it under my breath.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, is are there plans to do like a sequel to Love's Not Colorblind or like a related book? We're in talks
1: about that right now. I have no idea when or if that'll actually materialize. But right now we're in some really early talks about the idea of expanding, expanding Love's Not Colorblind. All right. Yeah.
0: I would, I mean, I'd be first online for that. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, as as a Black man, the reading that I've done about polyamory in the past has all been written by white women. Yes and I am neither white nor a woman. And then there's, you know, kind of the being a queer man on top of that. So knowing you and having met you uh, a few times and knowing that, you know, you're a black man, you're of West Indian descent, like we're from the same relative geographic area, like it it feels like I'm actually reading words by somebody who understands me, which isn't to say that you know, you have to be Black and you have to be from the Northeast or you have to be West Indian to understand me, but I find a lot more relatability. Yeah. You know. I'm I'm
1: really glad you say that. Like, a lot of times this work, and you understand this, I'm sure, a lot of times this work sounds like, it feels like you're sort of shouting into the void. And whenever I do this workshop, before the book got written, when I do this workshop, what kept me going was seeing people nodding along. There'd be like the one black dude in the corner nodding along when I talk about, when I bring up some something that happened to me, he'd be nodding along. And like, sometimes people say, well, hey, this happened to me too. And this, you know, like, oh, let me tell you about the time that, you know, such and such happened. And then there'd be like that white person in the room that's like, oh my God, I did that to somebody. <laughs> you know? For real. Like the first couple times I did this workshop, like there were, there were tears, you know, because people realized that some of their behaviors that they thought were like welcoming and, and, uh, and warm were actually like were, uh, were really othering and fetishizing.
0: Whenever you're talking about something that's difficult to talk about, like people will come to the discussion because they find something interesting about it. But a lot of times it gives those people the freedom to be a little bit more open about that thing that they feel so closeted or, or, you know, whatever about just because it's like, Oh, one person, you know, I've experienced this a lot with my mental health talks. It's kind of like, particularly with guys, it's like, Oh, you give me the freedom to say that I deal with depression because before you spoke, I hadn't really, it's, it's not only the, the fact that, I'm talking about it. It's the fact that you know me and I'm talking about it. So yeah. it's like we already have a relationship and that makes it more real. And
1: that's, that's sort of why I like focusing my work sort of warts and all, because there are, there are people who need to hear that. There are people who need to hear that you are flawed and imperfect, but also successful as well. Right. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was in, I was featured in the Philadelphia Daily News. I'm actually looking at it like a partner of mine framed the article on the, and I've got it on my wall. My wife and I were on the front cover of Philadelphia Daily News and the, the, the article got so much buzz that our local community added something like three or 400 new members over the course of a couple of months. Oh, wow it's got such a flood of new membership and i have no idea who most of these folks are you know like but i was in charge of like i was one of the people who was in charge of bringing in new people like uh, approving new memberships and most of those people were people of color you know there are so many people we added literally hundreds of people of color to a, to a polyamory group and so if i can like if I, if me being a little bit visible Helps people have conversations that they otherwise weren't going to have. I'm here for it. Like, there's a discomfort to it, but I like I like the idea that people are finding value in the work that I'm doing. And if that means I've got to lean my face out a little bit more from time to time, I'll, I'm I'm here for it because the the difference the difference is ten years later, somebody else makes some other show where they're like, "Isn't that white people shit?" I'd rather ten years from now we have a we have enough representation that that the that, that line doesn't exist
0: in the future show. Absolutely, absolutely. So how do we tie masculinity into all this? Because that could go in like twenty five different directions. Truth. Um, um, oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, you go ahead. A lot, a
1: lot of polyamory. Like one of the first things in polyamory, like you have to unlearn a lot of mononormative shit and. As, as someone who is socialized as a man, I'm a cis dude, and like people who are socialized as men, like we're socialized in such a competitive way, and like uh, in, in such a way that's like devoid of emotions, where we're only allowed to be like, you know, lustful or angry, and those are our emotions, and you have to be stoic otherwise. You have to unlearn so much of that for successful polyamory. Especially if you, like, if you are a man who is dating someone who has other male partners, they're like, I, 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 whenever, like, whenever my wife would bring home some other guy, I would always try to be like super friendly for that first meetup. Like that, that first time I'd meet him, I'd always try to be super friendly just because I know it's going to be uncomfortable for this person going in, you right. know, like, okay, I'm going to meet her husband. Is he going to try to fight me? You know, right.
0: like, you just that, feel like you're going to get ice grilled right away.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I'm always like, hey, you know, good to meet you. Come sit down, watch a TV, here's a drink, you know? Just just so you know right off bat, we are not we are not in competition here. Like, she likes you for whatever reason, she likes me for some other reason, it's all good. I'm also doing my own thing. We're you know, this isn't a competition. And just making that such a making that such a priority. It's because one of the first times that I met a partner of uh, a a metamorph, a partner of my partner was at like a housewarming party. And like, I'm talking to this guy for the first time ever. And he's just like, Hey, every time, you know, every time our shared partner comes home from one of your dates, she seems a lot more relaxed because she's really tightly wound 90% of the time, but she seems really chill when she's with you. So I'm glad for your dynamic. And then he gave me a hug and I'm like, wow, this is, this is amazing. I want to make sure that I can be that guy for other people because That's I so like, I, I value that they bring joy to someone who I want to see in like uh, who I want to see happy.
0: Simple as that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, there is, I mean, the ongoing conversation really is that men need to be more emotionally, emotionally present, emotionally vulnerable, emotionally available. Just, you know, and I say this, uh, you know, having gone through and still going through this stuff myself, like yeah. even as even as someone who's queer, you know, there's so much. You know, competition definitely exists. The not having any emotions besides lust, anger, and you know, sort of maybe like corny humor. You know, being the the, the sensitivity and vulnerability piece doesn't you know, it, it doesn't come easy all the time. But I really think that these are conversations we need to have, and these are emotions that we need to feel—not just to have successful relationships, but just to be like su- ultimately successful people on like a personal yeah. level.
1: Yeah, like it—it it makes us—it makes us more complete as human beings, and like we we avoid that stuff, but we get zero benefit. Like the only benefit that that, that guys get from like that toxic masculinity. Is approval from other toxically masculine guys, and it's right. like, then so if, if if that's the case, if that's who you're you're poly in for, if if that's who you're politicking for approval from, then like really you're part of the fashion show too. So where you know why not show up those emotions?
0: For real, for real. In terms of everything that's sort of going on currently, like first of all, how are you coping with everything that's because we're just in like a maelstrom of yeah shit at the
1: moment (laughs) it's 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 been a really up and down thing for me because like the like the the protests i'm 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 very very supportive of the protests i mean like for for obvious reasons i put a lot of money towards uh i I put a lot of money towards memorial funds and bail funds and charities and the okra project and so on and like, but like, that's all really difficult. The pandemic is really difficult. Like having to stay home as hard as I have, as, as much as I have, has been difficult. But at the same time, like, I've been able to spin a lot of these circumstances into like these into like these big wins for me, where I, I taught, I was teaching classes about polyamory with our friend, Dr. Liz Powell. And like, those went really well. And like, we're, we're selling out, um, we're selling recorded versions of those classes and that's going really well i've been able to like all the places that i was supposed to go to this year got canceled so i instead of selling books in like a variety of cities i've been selling them out of my house and i've been selling them out and that's been really great so like i've got like these personal wins and these societal losses and i'm trying to like reconcile reconcile my guilt with
0: thriving during an apocalypse that's actually a question that I, that's something I've been struggling with also. And I'm like, yeah. wow, I have therapy tomorrow. So this is a question I actually need to bring up. Yeah. But yeah, when, and I saw somebody posted on Instagram recently as well. It's like when, when from a certain standpoint, you are doing very well, but the world at large is kind of crumbling around you. Like, how do you balance that?
1: And you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and say this. We need to let that go. And the reason why we need to let that go it's because, like, white supremacists don't have problems with thriving during an apocalypse. They don't have problems with war profiteering. They don't have problems with, you know, uh, cashing out life insurance on, on employees that got swept away in a hurricane. Right. Like, yeah, they don't have any problems at all thriving during uh, during wartime. So, really, we should let that go because our, our conflict right now is white
0: supremacists, and we don't want to be that. So in terms of, I remember the first time I saw you speak, which was in Toronto, um, you brought up a story that I think is mentioned in the book about you going running. Yeah. And, you know, it's, and I've actually had this, a similar experience, not like being followed or, or anything like that. But, you know, when I was before my knees gave out, when I was able to run, like I would, you know, if I saw a police car approaching yeah. or in a distance or heard something because I used to run early in the morning and in most cases it was dark. Yeah. I would get like super, super tense. And explaining that to people that don't have to go through that turns the light bulb on for a lot of folks or for some folks. Yeah. That story's that
1: story's not in the book, but it was yeah, it was I was in Dallas for uh, the conference poly Dallas Millennium. Right. Where Jogging and I see like I see cops pulling somebody over in the distance and I'm like I gotta run past there and like I'm all of a sudden doing all this math in my head about like how close do I have to run towards the, how close do I have to run on uh, uh towards that scene you know I'm just gonna walk I'm gonna walk and I'm gonna let the cop do what his cop business and drive off before I even get to where he is right now
0: right
1: yeah that's that's such a that's such a weird place to have to live like you know, there have been times where, like, I'm, you know, uh, jogging in my neighborhood or just walking through. It's cold. It's raining. Do I put my hood up? Someone might think I'm doing something if I have my hood up. Right. So I, I guess I'm just gonna be wet today because I don't want to. It's either wet or the possibility of, of of having my life interrupted by some some random ass cop. Right. You know, or some random ass white person who decides that they're a cop
0: in the in the moment. Right. What has been the hardest thing, I guess, what has been the hardest thing to explain to folks about polyamory and what has been the hardest thing to explain to white folks about being black?
1: The hardest thing to explain uh, to folks about polyamory is that they already understand it. (laughs) Um, Where it, it seems so strange and foreign. And I'm like, look, there's the, you know, there's the one guy uh, who only ever eats Big Macs. Like if you look him up, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but he only ever eats Big Macs, and he's eaten like tens of thousands over the course of the last like forty years or whatever it is.
0: Wait, this is a real person? Yeah, yeah.
1: And they, they got, um, I remember he- reading about him. And then, like, they showed him in a super size meet. They tried to use him as – but when people started suing McDonald's because they were gaining weight, they used this guy as the basis because they said this guy only eats Big Macs, and he's, you know, 185 pounds. So, you know, McDonald's couldn't have made you fat. But, like, that's a it's, – it's a real dude. And, like, we laugh at this guy because – or we don't laugh, but, like, we, you know, we look at this guy funny because that sounds funny. Yeah. That sounds unhealthy. yeah i mean he's he's a he's a slim healthy guy but like all he ever eats are big macs like that's bananas two to three a day and we look at this guy funny because like he's given away like the entirety of the culinary experience and 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 brought it down to this one food meanwhile we do that with our lives with the people we spend all of our time with and and we think that that's completely normal but like, we don't do that. with it's the only aspect of our lives that we do that to. Like if I said, "Oh, I don't eat beef; I eat chicken," like someone would say, "Well, you could eat both." I was like, Hell, "I'm not going to have two kids. I already have one. How, why would I have a second kid? You know, I've only got the one friend. I don't do cardio and weightlift. Right. I do one or the other. Like, it sounds it sounds silly when we when we when we when we talk about it in any other aspect of our lives." You know, so when I tell a monogamous person like you already understand that this is what you do in every other aspect of your life, it's it, it ends up being a harder conversation than it should be. As far as being black, I think one of the hardest things to have a conversation about, one of the hardest things to say to someone about being black, is more a matter of. The world, the 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 way American society is structured, benefits white folks, and I think that's a really difficult conversation to have because what white folks hear when you say that is that they didn't have to work hard, or you know they like they they never struggled or anything like that. They 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 it's easier to believe that um, it's easier to believe that a structure of oppression doesn't exist than it is to believe that it does exist and that you benefit from it. That's like, Nobody wants to hear that. Everyone wants to think of themselves in such glowing terms that if you say like, hey, you benefit from the oppression of people, they're going to reject that without even hearing the rest of the argument. That makes it a really difficult conversation to have just like across the board. And like, and it's not just localized to race, you know, men don't want to hear that women don't have it. Well, you know, uh, cis people don't want to hear that trans people don't have it. Well, they don't want to hear about how transphobia benefits them, but it,
0: what it does, you know, it absolutely does. So lately the past couple of of episodes I've recorded, I had like a stock last question And I've been every episode, like going back and forth about how much I like that question. Okay. But I'm gonna give you the question anyway. (laughs) Let's have it. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? The best
1: piece of advice I'd ever been given. Um, Hmm. It's your fault. That was a. Bit, I, it was something. I, it was something that I got from my, from a book. I don't. I don't. I don't title the book anymore because I'm not sure how great it is anymore. But it was something I needed in the moment. I was at a point in my life where I was really miserable, and I was blaming. I was blaming women. It was their fault for being, you know, shallow or materialistic or not liking a guy like me. Or whatever it is, and then like I read a book that it, that broke it down and just said like, no, it's actually your fault. You're you're less interesting than you think you are. You're more entitled than you think you are. You know, you can really turn your turn your life around and not blame people at all for this. And once I sort of figured that out, you know, like it's not it's not like it's not like oppression where you're on the where you're on the wrong side of it. You know, as a cis dude. And at the at the time, I was identifying as straight. So right. as a as a cis straight dude, the world was my oyster in ways that I did not understand. So all of my all of my my all of my turmoil was caused by me. And learning that was, I was able to sort of figure things out. In I was able to make myself a better version of myself.
0: Right on. And since you brought that up, I got to ask this question: When did your identification switch? A couple a
1: couple of years ago, like me being me being straight wasn't like a it wasn't like a closet. It was I've given I've given a lot of examination of my sexuality over the years. Like I've examined my options and like it wasn't one of those things where a common story you hear is like I knew I was different at a young age or you know, "I, I I I was attracted to people that I didn't think I should be attracted to or that society said I should have been attracted to. Like, no, I was attracted to cis women for 30 something years. And then one day that just changed. It's a longer story than I'm, that I'm telling. Right. But like, um, all of a sudden, like I started seeing people who, who were, who it was like, I was seeing people who were, who I was attracted to in ways that I hadn't before. And by the time that happened, I had been so ingrained in, Polyamorous, polyamorous communities, sex positive communities, I was in so many queer friendly communities that by the time that my attractions changed and like I was like 37, 38 years old, by the time my attractions shifted, I was already in a place that was comfortable with that. So I didn't have, like, I didn't have to have a closet. I didn't have to have any inner turmoil. It was like, oh, wow, here's some new information about myself. That's cool. I guess I'm doing this now.
0: That's really interesting. Uh, You know, sexuality is such a fascinating topic because there's no one size fits all for everybody. Exactly. And and people's journeys are different. And we're just so, as a society, as Americans, as men, so restricted. Restricted is not the right word. And I don't know what the right word is right now. But it's just like this fucked up kind of you know you feel like you get you're held back from being your full self and also yeah. not realizing that who your full self is may change situationally and like i
1: can only imagine like if if all of a sudden i started finding like same-sex attraction like i went to an all-boys high school you know I, I I don't know what I would have gone through if I had experienced a same sex attraction while I was in high school. That right. would have been like the exact wrong environment for me. Cause like I was in Catholic school. I was surrounded by people who would have fought me about that kind of shit. You right. know? And but no, like that was me when I was like 18. All of a sudden, 20 years later, I'm 38 and I see one of my partners banging their boyfriend at a at a party. And I'm like, oh wow, like this is really hot not just my partner, who I always find hot, but their boyfriend too. Right. And then it's like, hey, um, I found you both hot. Can I, like, make something happen between the three of us here? And they're like, yeah, we already had that conversation. (laughs) Now that that you're on
0: board, how does Tuesday look for you? It's funny, because what we were about to ask you was, yeah, mean, That's that's really cool. And, you know, the fluidity... And the learning things as you grow and just the the constant change is something that I really just am like firm on. And from a sexuality perspective, like, I don't think I've changed very much. I was, you know, I've been queer for as long as I knew what sexuality was. And I think having language to understand sexual attraction versus romantic attraction, like all this stuff that I've acquired in the last like six, seven years has been very helpful in kind of putting a, not a period at the end of the sentence, but a soft period at the end of the sentence or question mark at the end of the sentence. But da, da, da. It, yeah, exactly. But it's been really valuable to know that different people start in different places. They can end in different places. Like, you know, you don't, you know, you don't always know and you don't have to be locked into something for your whole life.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly kind of annoyed by it where. I like the idea that I was like this sexually unthreatened straight guy, you know, and then all of a sudden, like, no, I'm not, I'm not a sexually unthreatened straight guy. I'm I'm a queer guy. Right. Yeah. Like I had to erase that last line and write it back.
0: Right. That's dope. So where can the people find you, Kevin, if they want to find you and what are you, what uh, is next for you project wise?
1: Um, next, yeah, we're working on For Hire Supercell, which is kind of a prequel to our first novel, our first superhero novel, For Hire Operator. Those are available. Those are available on Amazon as as paperbacks. They're available as eBooks, basically anywhere. Um, we're also working on that like, I had mentioned earlier, like the idea of a a book about cautionary poly, teachable moments in non monogamous relationships. We're working on that as well. We're going to try to get that out sometime next year. Dr. Liz Powell and I have a, a a class series called unfuck your polyamory. The live series went really well. We're, we're, we've got the recorded series out now. It's a, a six, a six class webinar. We're really excited about that as well. I'm poly role models on everything. I'm poly role models on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, YouTube. So like, that's, uh, the easiest place to find me in any of those in like any of those social media spaces
0: right on you know I think a lot about how brave it is to live in your truth if that truth doesn't jive with not only what is conventional or considered conventional in society but considered conventional in your family and friend circle and I really really want to give appreciation And a shout out to Kevin Patterson for living in his truth and being open about his truth and freeing others through his truth. Um, I've certainly had certain experiences where there are things about me that are considered unconventional. And I've been willing to share those and in the process have gotten other people to accept and live a little bit more truthfully and, you know, sometimes I think all we need is a little bit of a push to normalize behaviors that should be normalized. And I think Kevin's doing big things with the, the things that he does in order to normalize things like polyamory and uh, sexual fluidity and blackness in alternative communities. So I just I, my hat is completely off to him. If you want to know more about Kevin, you can go to models, That is polyrolemodels.com. And uh, you can look at conversations with tons of other people who live a polyamorous existence. And I strongly advise you, whether you are into open relationships or polyamorous or not, to pick up Love's Not Colorblind, Race and Representation in Polyamorous and Other Alternative Communities, because it really says great stuff about being a person of color or being a black person in spaces that are generally considered white And if you are doing any anti-racist work in the moment, um, these are books that you should definitely check out. In terms of charity, this week, uh, the charity that I am choosing to discuss is Planned Parenthood. And Planned Parenthood uh, should kind of go without introduction. Most of you know what Planned Parenthood is. Not only do they provide abortions for uh, women, but they also provide uh, crucial, crucial medical services for women in america and planned parenthood has been under attack for quite a while and it is really really important that we continue to fund this this organization so if you go to planned parenthood you can learn more about planned parenthood and you know it would be great if you could drop a couple of join drop a couple of coins i need to learn to speak and unfortunately planned parenthood cannot help me with that Drop a couple of coins in their bucket. Uh, they provide reproductive health care, actually not just in the United States, as, as I'm reading, but they are a global organization. So once again, it's plannedparenthood.org, and uh, you can learn more about them there. You can learn more, more about the Detox Pod by uh, following me on Facebook, facebook.com slash detoxpod, or following me on Instagram at itsmikejoseph. I would love for you to leave a comment or a rating on the page of any service that you are using to check this podcast out, whether it be Apple Podcasts or iTunes or Spotify. I don't have preferences here, I'm telling you. Uh, Podbean or Stitcher or iHeart Podcasts, whatever wherever you listen to this show, leave a rating, leave a comment. It is greatly appreciated. It pushes, up, pushes us up in the standings and gets us known by more people. If you would like to be on the uh, detox pod mailing list, please go to detoxpod or a tinyurl.com slash detox pod. I send a newsletter out once a month. I'm not gonna stuff your inboxes with spam, so don't worry about that. And uh, you'll get to catch up with some of our previous guests. You'll get to know a little bit more about what's coming up and I'm sure there will be other stuff that I do as things develop that uh will be exclusive to this particular newsletter. Also want to let you folks know about something that my friends at Sound Mind Live are doing. I hope that you listened to the episode with Chris Bullard from a few weeks back. They're doing fantastic work. There is a new uh, web series on Sound Mind Live's Instagram called Staying in Tune. Each week, there will be interviews with different musicians talking about how they navigate the world and their business uh, via mental health. And the first guest, which actually this will have been recorded after or before, This episode goes live is my man, Dave Bellevue. Dave has also been on Detox Pod and the host of Staying in Tune is yours truly. So please make sure you check that out. I hope that you stay safe and well. I hope that you're doing great things. I hope that you continue to listen to this podcast. I hope that you're taking care of yourselves and those around you, and I wish you a fantastic week. I will catch you next week on the Detoxicity Podcast. My name is Mike Joseph. Thank you for listening. Peace out, y'all.